Good evening to you all, and welcome to a lecture in the Ralph Miliband Lecture Series, which goes on for the whole of this academic year on the future of capitalism. Uh, the theme this evening, or the title this evening, is Them and Us, How Capitalism Without Fairness is Capitalism Without a Future. And when I thought of this, Will, and I was thinking about your lecture title, I thought to myself, well, it does beg the question that capitalism has had one hell of a future already, as it were, without much of a sense of fairness, in a sense, the past. And uh, so I'll be interested to know how you address this qu the particular issue of the relationship between capitalism and fairness and the sustainability of capitalism running now and onwards, as it were. It is a great pleasure for me to introduce Will Hutton, and I'll do so sort of personally and uh, formally, as it were. I've known Will for a very long time. We've traveled through life's highways and byways together for many years. Um, I have come to know him both as a great journalist, as a writer of very successful books, but also not just as a fantastic colleague, but as a fine, fine friend. So it's, a, it's very significant for me that you're here this evening, Will, and I, I welcome you uh, and uh, hope very much that the questions are acute and so acute that uh, we force the development of your current project, which is a book on precisely on these themes. Let me introduce now Will a little bit more formally and just run through his very brief CV. He is currently Executive Vice Chair of the Work Foundation, having served as its Chief Executive already since 2000. He began his career as a stockbroker and investment analyst before working in BBC TV and radio as a producer and journalist. Prior to starting with the Work Foundation in 2000, he spent four years as editor-in-chief of The Observer, and of course he writes a very distinguished uh, economic commentary a column for the paper on a more or less weekly basis. He has written many, many best-selling books. You know most of the title because they're very similar. The World We're In, The State We're In, The State To Come, common theme there, The Stakeholding Society and On The Edge, uh, edited with Anthony Giddens. In addition, he won the Political Journalist Year Award in the middle of the 1990s. The other roles he performs, that's other than the Work Foundation, are many and numerous, just a couple here. Membership of the Government's Advisory Panel on New Industry, New Jobs, Universities and Skills, Fellow and Governor of the London School of Economics and Political Science, Honorary Fellow of Mansfield College, Oxford Visiting Professor, Manchester University Business School, and several more. His latest book, The Writing on the Wall, China and the West in the 21st Century, was published to much acclaim in the UK and elsewhere in 2007. He's now writing a book on these very themes of capitalism and fairness, to which the theme of which, of course, is his subject for tonight. So please join me in giving him a particularly warm welcome. Uh, well, thank you very much for that, David. I hope you can all um, hear me. Um, is the mics working? Are they working? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've been working today on, a, on a, an exchange I've, I've exchanged with George Osborne um, that you will all read in Sunday's Observer. Um, see what George Osborne's got to say about the financial crisis. Anyway, um, what I'm going to do tonight is just spend, um, and it's a bit of a dry run, so um, this is a kind of dress rehearsal. I want you to be very sympathetic to me in my dress rehearsal. I'm feeling quite nervous about it. Uh, it's the, the first time that I've tried to uh, kind of integrate um, all my ideas um, in one 40 or 45-minute lecture. 
Uh, it is really a helicopter view of the uh, book I've been working on for the last eight or nine months, which is called Them and Us. Um, them, uh, the financial oligarchs. Uh, us, uh, the people who obey the rules, really. Um, and it takes its jumping off point, the financial crisis. I will say a few words about that and the condition of Britain at the moment. Um, I then want to spend just a, a minute or two um, trying to think clearly about what we mean by fairness. And I am going to try and answer um, David's challenge about um, uh, uh, capitalism. It wasn't very fair um, from the Enlightenment onwards, but it was a great deal fairer than it had been beforehand. And I think that was the secret, really, of the growth story of the last uh, couple of hundred years. Um, I want to uh, say something about um, where we are politically, and I also want to um, deal with what I call, and this follows the writing on the wall, David. I, I mean, the, the, the Chinese words talk about you know, the three represents. Well, tonight I'm going to uh, have the, um, the, the, the five rebalancings, um, and I'm going to chat, uh, I think the, the next decade or two have five huge challenges um, four of them domestic, one of them international, and I don't think they can be answered successfully without a clear grasp and a clear understanding um, of what we mean by fairness around which we can build a consensus at home and abroad. But I, I want to start with um, the, uh, the, the, the financial crisis. Um, Andrew Haldane is the executive director of the Bank of England, produced earlier this week a paper in which he said that um, the IMF was wrong um, the IMF calculates that the um, support given by Western governments, the banking system, was $9 trillion. He says that's completely wrong. It was $14 trillion. Uh, he, it, that's 25% of world GDP. Um, and, of course, we've had the biggest recession since 1929-31. Uh, you know, outside war, uh, this is the biggest event of any of our lifetimes. Uh, and... Uh, the British banking system very nearly went bust just 12 months ago. Um, uh, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland was hours away uh, from closing. We had a, we ha the, the Treasury had contingency plans for a um, three-day bank holiday uh, in which you would not have got cash out of your um, ATM. We were in a cash-free society with a cropped banking system. Um, and, that, and there were similar um, near-death near events um, in America and another and another leading capitalist um, countries, uh, in the mid 1980s, bank assets were twice GDP. Uh, last year, they were five times GDP. Uh, bank assets went from twice British GDP to five times British GDP. At the same time, the capital that underpinned it went from five to one. So the capital that supported uh, this more than doubling of bank assets fell by 500 percent. There was no deposit insurance. There was no lender of last resort facility. Uh, it was one of the most extraordinary stories of our time. And some of you may be Sunday Times readers. You'll have read Lloyd Blankfein, uh, the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, arguing that the bankers do God's work. Uh, and he thinks that in uh, November '09, He certainly thought that in the run-up to the crisis in '07. And what the uh, and what the uh, and the argument, um, the moral argument behind this extraordinary growth of finance was, um, 
this, uh, uh, these bonuses, uh, the scale of what we're doing, is not just economically efficient, it's, our, it's the fair reward for our innovation. It's fair. And actually, we live in a society in which the rich have started to say that it's only fair that they're rich, and it's only fair that they don't pay much tax. Remember Michael Caine's reaction to the 50p tax rate? It was outrageous that he was going to, a hard-working Michael Caine was going to pay 50p tax for some scrounger to go to bed in the morning. It's only fair for me to pay 40% tax or no tax at all. And we have a, an amazing inversion, really, of this conception in which actually the business elite, um, media oligarchs, uh, Berlusconi regarding himself as the most victimized man in creation. <laughs> it's hugely unfair that I, having avoided all those taxes, uh, should, ha should have to appear in ta uh, before Italian magistrates 3,000 times. The victimization of the rich when held to account by us because they say it's unfair that we should unchallenge what they regard as their due desert for their innovation and their effort. And in a way, um, it's been a kind of brilliant um, rhetorical device um, to justify um, grotesque, um, a grotesque bargain between us and finance, um, $14 trillion worth of support, 25% of um, GDP, says uh, Andrew Haldin, is the total support across the West. In the UK, it's $1.7 trillion. Base money, um, which is the amount of money that is a measure of liquidity the Bank of England has had to put into the banking system, has gone up by four times. That's m in just two years, more than any time in its history since its foundation in 1694. The amount of the, the balance sheet of the Bank of England is more distorted than even in wartime, even at the height of the First and Second World War, the Bank of England not, did not have to support the banking system as much as it does now. It's astonishing. And we're underwriting it, and the bonuses are carrying on, and we're told it's in that unless we pay them, um, then people will flee to another bank or they'll go offshore. We have, we have a situation in which um, gross inequality and uh, grotesque uh, bargain between one, one part of the business community and the rest of us, and actually colossal inefficiency is described as actually fair. And I, uh, we don't even, and I think the Archbishop of Canterbury is right. We haven't had, I mean, I think that um, Stephen Green of HSBC, one or two others have said sorry, but we haven't actually um, had any mayor culpa um, really um, from the bankers. What they have told us is that it must be business as usual if we want our money back. Um, and I think this is a, this is a, a, a growing sense. Uh, if the elite think like this, you shouldn't be surprised if ordinary men and women do. Um, we live in what I increasingly call a have-what-we-hold society. Uh, we are all thinking that the others are getting away with it and that in some sense we are not getting a fair bargain. Too many scroungers, too many immigrants. There's an undeserving rich. There are tax evaders. The MPs fiddling their expenses. Sp sportsmen diving in the box. Every bloody football manager in the premiership still stands after every game and says it's not fair because of some refereeing decision. Again, the victimized uh, Mr. F Alec Ferguson or the victimized Arsene Wenger after a ruling has gone the wrong way, it's not fair, they cry. There is no, when we're using, this word is thrown around, 
it, it has come to um, justify um, victimization. It's come to justify a grotesque bargain. It's come to justify a really kind of unfair social arrangement. And I think the, the most corrosive thing of all about it uh, is that um, it's left all of us thinking that only the naive and idiots play by the rules. Um, I think that uh, uh, the defensiveness of our society, its cynicism, um, uh, uh, much of the suspicion uh, that actually uh, defines British um, um, social economic life uh, kind of has its origins in that we've lost our, we've, we, we, we've actually just lost an, uh, uh, a moral compass about something as basic as what constitutes fairness. And I think that you know, we've lost our religious root, uh, kind of anchorings and our moorings. Um, if we're going to, if we're going to um, live by secular rules, and we are living by secular rules, um, we'd better be clear um, about some basic things about actually what fairness means. Otherwise, I don't think you can build a coalition um, actually to reform the banking system. I don't, you can build, I don't think you can build a coalition to solve social polarization. I don't believe you can coalition, build a coalition to reform um, the parliamentary system. I don't believe that you can build a um, coalition, actually do the things that are required internationally and everything from climate change and through kind of reorganizing uh, um, the international financial system. Unless we have us, everyone can sign up to and have a clear understanding of what's fair, I think we're in trouble. Um, well, um, here I want to take you on a, on a um, ah, is this mic not working? Ah, well, well, well did I, look, I look like a ghoul, did I? <laughs> Some spectre. A big one? <laughs> yeah, I can get back to the start if you want me to. But, uh, um, so, I, uh, and here I want to um, uh, make a kind of big statement. I mean, the first of a number of big statements I want to make tonight. Um, every baby. Um, uh, uh, of every kind of uh, ethnicity in every continent is born with intuitive capacity to be able to speak and have uh, to want to hold people to account for their intentions. We have an intuitive capability as human beings um, to hold people to account for their intended actions. Uh, if we don't, if you intend harm, um, I don't like it, and I, and my peers will actually punish you. If you intend um, a good thing, we like it. Mark Hauser, in his book Moral Minds, he's professor of cognitive evolution in Harvard, has conducted 220,000, 220,000 um, experiments um, with people from 70 countries, all genders, all ages. Uh, and he comes up with a series of tests. I, there isn't time in 40 minutes to go through it in the book I do. Uh, he, I think, uh, uh, makes it, it is absolutely, I think, incontestable once you've looked at his tests and once you've read his stuff. You simply have to accept that actually uh, it, is a, it is part of your human condition, like standing up, making love, um, being thirsty. You actually... Uh, want to hold people account for their intentions. You just do, all of you. What's more, you do it in proportion. Um, 
I mean, the reason why, going back to um, you know, Greece, that actually justice was always about scales is about the proportionality uh, of uh, the reward or the proportionality of the punishment. It was Plato who wrote, um, and I think it's a lovely quote, if we disregard due proportion, due proportion, by giving anything what is too much for it, too much canvas to a boat, too much nutriment to a body, too much authority to a soul, the consequence is always shipwreck. So we know we begin to know something about what fairness constitutes. Um, we know that it's, there's a sense of proportionality. We know that it's about uh, holding you account, every, being accountability process for one's intentions. Uh, but it's not just about you know punishment and and honour and happiness. It's about the distribution of goods and resources in society. Now, pre the Enlightenment, this is a crucial point for David. Pre the Enlightenment, um, fairness was pretty much um, uh, kind of ascribed by birth. You, know, you knew it was it was it, it, if you were a Greek nobleman, um, it was fair that uh, you had privileges because you were a Greek nobleman. Equally, because it was because you um, and you deserved to be poor. Uh, it was ascribed. What happened during the Enlightenment was, whether it was Adam Smith, whether it was David Hume, whether it was Rousseau, we learnt uh, that, and we not learnt, we kind of passionately embraced the notion that men and women are born equal. So they earn their desert, they earn um, um, their punishment. Uh, we thought of an effort and contribution. You know, we don't value um, the effortless contribution and we don't value useless effort. We value um, what we value and what we think is fair is actually efforts that grow the pie rather than redistribute it. And if I asked you, if I did a test, there's not time, most of you in this room would actually think that, um, notwithstanding his um, eccentricities, that Alan Sugar is um, more worth his millions than the Duke of Westminster. And so I end up with a definition of fairness that was first used by Karl Marx. Um, from each according to his ability to each according to his contribution not um, in the higher state of communism from each according to his ability to each according to his need in fact in the Gotha program Marx acknowledges that actually we'll only ever escape basic human motivations after decades and decades and decades of communism and he's not absolutely clear that you'll ever actually get there because he knows and he was right in my view that actually human beings are born with uh, an inherent desire to link um, the discretionary effort uh, the, to the, um, to the uh, contribution you get. So here's my definition of fairness. Do you desert for discretionary effort? Uh, uh, I, and I'm with the early Marx on this, and I'm with uh, Mark Hauser on this, and I try to demonstrate that that's where we go. Now, I want to discuss luck, because you're thinking, or you should be thinking, if you haven't got bored or your mind's not wandering, we will get to some, we will get to Britain, we'll get to the financial crisis, and we'll get what, what to do about putting our society back together again in a little while. But I want to spend just another two or three minutes discussing fairness. Uh, everyone's thinking, well, that's all very well, but I mean, you know, if you're interested in sport, I mean, I may be interested in, why should Frank Lampard, I like playing football, why should Frank Lampard make 130000 a week and not me? I mean, He's got talent, I haven't. I mean, is that fair? 
Uh, what about the concert pianist? What about David Held, endowed with all this intellectual fa faculties to be you know, the great professor and senator of the of Institute of Global Governance? Is it fair that he should have that? What's he done? An awful lot. Uh, <laughs> and that's the point. Frank Lampard has spent, he's the last man off the chaining bridge. The concert pianist has spent 10,000 hours refining her art. Uh, and actually, um, your, the point is, you are endowed with, with, with talents, uh, all of you. And some of you have worked harder at um, working them up than others. And actually, inherently, you think it's fairer um, uh, that those who've done that, dis despite the fact they might have, because they could have wasted their talents. Uh, and then you get to this point about, well, what about good and bad luck? And I, here I think about the National Health Service. See, I think that um, we, know there's, we know there's lots of luck about. I mean, here we are, there's 300 people here. I know that uh, the statistics tell me that seven or eight of you um, will get pancreatic cancer. Can't tell you what it's going to be. But I know that in a population of 300 people, there'll be seven or eight who get it. And it's only fair that the 293 of us in this room that haven't got that gene but don't know it, uh, actually put a helping hand out to the seven of you who've got it. The National Health Service is before it's egalitarian, before it's collectivist, is a, we want to uh, uh, compensate you for your bad luck service. Equally good luck. There'll be the string of people in this room, I don't know, but um, there'll be 10 or 12 of you, and maybe 15 if the statistics are right, who are likely to inherit quite a lot of money. Uh, there'll be some who are going to inherit two, three, four, five million pounds in this room. I don't, and uh, I, that's just the luck of the draw. The case for inheritance tax is that I'm going to share, and I think the rest of us should share in your good luck. <laughs> inheritance tax is not a death tax. Inheritance tax is a we share in your good luck tax. And the reason why the Tories could never, ever privatize the National Health Service was because it's ultimately um, about a, uh, a, a service which actually insulates us from the lottery of bad luck over health. It's only fair to have such a service. There, I'm actually, I would bolt some egalitarianism onto it and I will bolt some uh, collectivism onto it. But the reason why it's such an unassailable institution in Britain is that is for that reason, in my view. Um, and you end up with a with a. I, I think that the fairness is, I think, a big challenge. Of course, to the right on both the National Health Service on inheritance tax, it's obvious that it's a challenge to the to the to the right. Uh, but it's also a challenge to the left. Because, um, as Harriet Harman has discovered and others, people aren't as bothered about inequality as the left think. And one of the reasons why they uh, aren't as bothered about inequality as the left think is because they're with the early marks. They think from each according to his ability to each according to his contribution. Have you in any way done something that either to get out of the situation that you're in or have you done something that um, merits you having more than me? And actually, people are quite tough on this. 
they do accept, actually, that Frank Lampard doesn't attain them to the extent to which he's worth that kind of amount of money. And they ask very, very hard questions of the single mother who's had children by seven or eight fathers. And actually, they wouldn't be human if they didn't. So you get into quite interesting territory here. And, and what I'm going to try and um, lay out is how I think that the kind of inability to kind of really confront this um, has actually led us to some, uh, I think, big mistakes. And lastly, every single one of you in this room cares uh, about the process. You care about the process. You believe that you, uh, um, you want to have a chance to um, speak at a, tr at, your, at a trial. You will, a lot of, I mean, it's extraordinary. If I try to buy your vote off you, if I say, I want, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds and I'll buy your vote off you, you'd be amazed, actually, how few of you will sell. Um, you want to participate. Um, you, want, um, you want parliamentary processes, you want adjudication processes at work that um, give you dignity, that you can trust, offer you equal treatment. Uh, the famous book, Getting to Yes, is about trying to get into the head of your interlocutor and actually um, finding a, a, a way by which you can help him or her um, to get off their um, high horse and come and accommodate themselves to you. That process of getting, of getting to yes is actually a fairness process. And here's two more points, which are very difficult. To, uh, democracy is a fairness process. And so can a market be a fairness process? If a farmer takes her produce um, to market, um, her, if her potatoes are um, better grown than the person in the next stall, she will expect you to acknowledge that by paying marginally more. It's her due dessert for her discretionary effort. And walk around any market stall or farmer's market and you'll see what I mean. What's wrong with markets is that they're so frequently rigged. And what's wrong with markets is that um, when you try to generalize the process to arrive at perfect outcomes, they can't and won't ever do it. But actually, um, one of our, and here's a um, fundamental problem about capitalist societies, is that if I want to, uh, the due desert for discretionary effort, the only place I've got to, um, uh, that I can deploy to, to value my discretionary effort is the market. But the market makes absolutely no distinction as to whether I've done it in a productive way or an unproductive way. And that, and that I think, creates kind of enormous um, tensions. And here we get to the um, heart of what I want to say this evening, is that um, I argue that the Enlightenment is a moment, a swing moment in Western history, when actually um, we started to create societies where um, it wasn't ascribed by um, the bishop or the monarch what you should think or what your reward should be. For the thousands of years up until that moment, actually the prophets of society um, went to those um, uh, who were born to it or who had captured it uh, or who held it by force. And what the Enlightenment opened up, highly imperfectly, uh, was actually the opportunity um, for people um, to get due desert for their discretionary effort. The reason why the pace of technological innovation really accelerates after 1750 um, is not just because the, the, and the, 
because the Enlightenment does two things. It opens up the prospect of daring to know and, and scientific knowledge, but it also opens the opportunity of entrepreneurs being able to deploy that in a way which drives economic growth. Welcome to the world of my second big statement, general purpose technologies. General purpose technologies like the internet or the aeroplane uh, or the three-masted sailing ship uh, or the railway um, are ones that, or the wheel, are ones that actually transform economies and societies. Um, it was the domestication of plants and animals that actually first allowed civilization to get going in 9000 BC, a general purpose technology. The wheel follows. Then you have uh, the bronze and the iron ages. And, uh, and the big point is, is that in the last uh, 250 years, more general purpose technologies than in the previous 9,000 years put together. And what can explain that? And what explains that, I think, is, that, is this uh, emergence of societies where um, people can challenge the incumbent. They can take a technology, take an idea, and in a, uh, in a, a freer society, uh, really um, uh, challenge the landowner, challenge the emperor, challenge the king, challenge the duke. And you start to get a, a process of um, capitalist entrepreneurship. There's not time. It's 7 o'clock already. Um, if there was time, I would take you through um, why I think um, um, 15th century Spain and 17th century France got themselves into such trouble because they were closed societies in which basically the king um, held all the economic rent and did a bargain with his um, noblemen um, to, to, uh, and froze um, the process of um, challenge, churn, running with ideas. Um, France, a, a society of tax farmers. Um, Spain, a class of um, ever, ever growing no one. So that by the kind of when Spain goes into decline, kind of almost 10% of the population of um, Spain can claim noble lineage, holding on to some tiny um, piece of land and passing on it uh, to their children without any, any tax. This is a closed society. The Enlightenment busts it open. And, of course, the first Enlightenment society, partial Enlightenment society, is Britain. Uh, and it's Britain with its, uh, with its imperfect franchise, Britain with its checks and balance constitution, uh, Britain with its independent central bank that can sell debt, uh, 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 Britain that, is a, that, that, has, that is a more open society to the, uh, to, the, to the building, actually, of productive entrepreneurship, but very imperfect. It's not a very perfect democracy. And already by, um, the, by the second half of the 19th century, it's been overtaken by the Americans and the Germans who are investing uh, hugely uh, in, uh, in, in, in education. Uh, and you know, their society and busting trusts as they were in the, in the United States. It's a potted history, but um, what I want to try and get over to you is that um, these societies weren't particularly fair, but they were less unfair than what had preceded them. And that's my contention to the challenge that you laid out at the beginning. And then you get to Britain um, in the post-war period. Britain, um, with its um, only, um, uh, still with a, with, with a constitution that in many respects is pre-democratic. Um, uh, Britain, uh, with um, uh, operating its system of corporatism with its pre-democratic constitution, kind of entrenching companies and entrenching unions not being particularly open 
to um, new forces, new ideas, um, new businesses, new technologies, new prisons, and it starts to freeze. And it creates the crisis of the 1970s. I spell this out in the state we're in. And actually, then you, we get Thatcherism. And her solution is you know, not actually to create a more open access society, not to embrace notions of fairness and due desert for discretionary effort, but actually to um, reinvent an imagined past of a kind of free market utopia. Um, and that opens the door to another rising oligarchic elite finance who um, use this language of the, of the free market uh, and the language of fairness, as I described in the opening, um, uh, uh, my, my opening remarks, um, to build this astonishing shadow banking system um, and the credit growth that um, uh, grew from it and landing us in the mess we're in today. But the big point was, was that um, this, uh, the, the inability to think straight um, you know, where was the challenge to Reaganism and Thatcherism? You know, where was the social democratic challenge to it, and where was the One Nation challenge to it at that time? Where, how easy was it for her um, to get rid of the Ted Heath, the Jim Pryors, uh, and that One Nation tradition? Um, answer, because they didn't have, it, they couldn't say to her the way to actually get um, uh, a dynamic economy is to embrace fairness, to give due reward to entrepreneurs, to link um, desert to contribution, to construct your social insurance system on that, your tax system on that, um, to construct your political system on that. That will open stuff up, Margaret. No one said that. And the Social Democrats and the Labour Party found they couldn't say it either when they lost in 1992. For me, 1992 is um, the third most important date in the post-war period. 45, 79, and 92, when New Labour lost, or when Old Labour lost and New Labour was born, because that finally extinguished, in my view, the social democratic tradition um, in Britain. And uh, New Labour decided to become a simulcrum um, of um, the marketeers uh, in the Conservative Party, only nicer. They would do timid um, triangulation. Um, they would have the politics of assurance um, to business and um, that would be the bargain that would allow them to get elected in 97 uh, with the remnants of their um, commitment to John Smith as being the only thing that would be radical that we would recognize or the Social Democrats in this room would recognize uh, and hence the minimum wage and hence what constitutional reform we got. After that, it was, there were some good things done but they were all second order. The big bargain remained um, staying with um, the Thatcherite settlement, a Thatcherite settlement that actually, to my mind, had answered the question that was posed in the 70s incorrectly. Um, and I, I just, the last decade between 97 and 2007, uh, I mean, it is an astonishing story of the way in which um, uh, a, a uh, the political class and the official class simply uh, allowed this amazing shadow banking system to happen. Um, they were told it conformed to market principles. Um, they were told it would be economically efficient. Um, and of course, um, uh, and, they, and above all, they were told that it was um, only fair that actually um, 
this class of financial oligarchs should get their due dessert um, for their innovation and their discretionary effort. And they had no rhetoric to, to fight back. No rhetoric to fight back. Um, and some of the things that went on in that period, I mean, I, I mean I, um, the Financial Services Authority, um, which I regard as a, as a statutory trade association to promote the city, uh, I mean, it was an, I mean, it is a, we look at the, when you look at the statutes of the Financial Services Authority and the, Financial, and the act that established it, I mean, it is, it is not to do, the people who run it you know, are not permitted, actually, to do things that would um, be contrary to the city's competitiveness, not to, not to obstruct um, new kind of innovations. Uh, because the, the, so the whole shadow banking system, well, hedge funds, private <coughs> equity, investment banking, broker-dealers, over-the-counter trading, uh, collateralized debt obligations, traction investment vehicles, tax havens, credit default swaps, running into trillions and trillions of dollars. So that with those phenomenal numbers I gave you at the beginning, kind of dwarfing our GDP by many times, and finally allowing us, the taxpayer, to pick up the bargain at the end. What a grotesque deal that was. Uh, it was an unfair bargain. And, but no one blew the whistle. No one said, look, you can't do this stuff because the consequences of it will be, um, aside from uh, its economic inefficiency, uh, that the consequences will, will be, uh, if things go wrong, unbelievably unfair because we hadn't got an agreement, uh, in my view, about what fairness means. Um, the left were too preoccupied by it being uh, an, a set of egalitarian principles, um, and, the, um, and, the, and, the, and the right were in a world in which you have the deserving poor and the, and the, uh, the undeserving poor, and the, and the rich plainly because they're rich, deserving all they've got without applying the test of whether there was any discretionary uh, effort, genuinely and genuine innovation at the base of it. So here we are. In, two th in 2009, I mean, unbelievable. You know, you've got a, you've got a budget deficit of 175 billion pounds, which must be got down, but actually if it's got down too quickly, could create, could create monumental kind of unemployment. You've got a, we have an economy where if you look at um, the FTSE 100, look at our great companies that the you know, young men and women from the LSE will try to join. You know, it's banks, it's mining finance houses, it's retailers, it's a few drug companies, a few defense contractors. It's not, it doesn't speak of a balanced economy. It doesn't speak of um, great enterprises that have been built up uh, by entrepreneurs who um, want to produce um, great things um, uh, with great ideas or technologies. We don't do that in Britain. Um, we have uh, a society in which the polarization grows you know, every five, ten years. Danny Dawling, a social geographer at University of Sheffield, did a report just ten days ago reporting on how, you know, ward by ward, you look at Sheffield, you know, um, the people who, the, 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 the ten million people, the bottom ten million people in Britain who earn 15,000 pounds a year or less are more and more focused in particular wards in cities like Sheffield, and the middle class more and more focused in other wards. There's no kind of social mix is disappearing. The people under 15 grand live with each other. Many of them in social housing um, live on uh, uh, two-thirds of them, three-quarters of them. The figure is 73% from John Hills's report um, live on benefit. John Hills's report, who's here, of course, LS, is John in the audience? Uh, I mean, John's fantastic report um, that he did for the, um, the CLG, which shows that you know, 
of the four million people in social housing, um, less than a dozen could move from one city to another within social housing. Aha! And then you've got our, our, our politics, uh, an overstrong executive, um, and a, an overstrong prime minister, in my view, uh, a democratic assembly that doesn't deliberate very much. Um, a media that is you know, out of control. The Press Complaints Commission will not actually say boo to the News International. The amazing, uh, you know, the, the, I think it's astonishing that a national newspaper, I mean, I think national newspapers obviously have political affiliations, but to declare nine months before an election that you want one party to win and campaign for it for nine months, you know, is just, I think, is any sense of, um, you know, the ro what, is that the role of a free media in a free society? Uh, where everything you read in, in, a, in, a, in that paper will be slanted one way for nine months? I don't think so. But what about the international economy? I mean, we've, I mean, Gordon Brown, to his credit, floated the notion of an of a international transactions tax to kind of try to bound the limit um, of, the, of a financial system which is many times larger um, than world GDP now, tripled in relation to um, world GDP in just you know, 25 years, and can't triple again in size because, you know, if it does, the, the, the chance of black swan events um, that will hit one of the mega banks that um, ha have networks throughout, who have tentacles throughout the network, the contagion of that will bring the whole house of cards down. And who has to pick up the bill? People in this room and tens of millions like us. You know, something has to be done at an international level about, about, about finance, about climate change, Copenhagen. What is the fair bargain between the developed world and the less developed world? And the, these are the challenges, I think, that, that, that face our, um, um, whoever is elected in, 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 in 2010. Um, I've got a lot to say about how you can get, how you can, um, how you can do things within each of these headings. I mean, I, I'm, whether you're left of center or, or right of center, I, I hope you admire a company like um, Rolls-Royce. I went around um, Rolls-Royce's um, um, plant and service facilities in Derby recently, and it's a great thing to see. It's a British company, and there's, the, uh, there's one room where you can see uh, where they monitor in real time 3,500 Trent and RB211 engines in the air. So they're sitting there, there's, ba there's, a, there's a bank of um, monitors, and they can watch the, the actually in real time and the performance of these engines as they fly. And if there's minute deviations, they can, uh, they can uh, um, alert the, uh, the, um, uh, the airline to um, not just the fact that there's a slight deviation from performance, but actually what it might be and how long they've got before they have to ground the plane and do something about it. That's a British company, and that's productive entrepreneurship. Britain has got one Rolls-Royce. It should have 50. And uh, you, know, the, you have to ask the question, you know, why don't we get more Rolls-Royces? Um, why, why, why have we said, well, you know, the, the architecture in which such companies um, grow is a matter of indifference. Leave it to um, the market. Who is going to be, who's going to come forward like Rolls and Royce and grow a company like that? Um, the average life expectancy of companies now, um, a third of them died in the 80s, 40% died in the, in the 90s, half of them died within three years in the, in the, in the noughties. We have to populate our 
um, population of dying small firms with, with, with new firms. We have to have an architecture that actually scales them up. And you won't get people to come forward unless they think they can get scale, unless they're going to get backing, unless they can exploit their talents, if they don't get due dessert for their discretionary effort. Otherwise, they'll all fuck off to the city. <laughs> and we have to, and you, we, as, a, as a national community, we have to start putting in place an innovation and, uh, and, in, and investment framework. Um, we have to also think very carefully about how we're going to reduce this deficit. I am absolutely, uh, you know, this, this, and this, this, this notion that it is unfair um, to future generations that the national debt is going to rise to 85% of GDP in 2015 and that the fair thing to do um, is to bring the deficit down much faster than even the Labour government is planning um, because we don't want to hand on to our grandchildren so much debt. Well, uh, is that an appropriate response? Is that the fair response to the situation in which we find ourselves? Uh, after uh, a, a, a crisis of this type, um, we know that with the private sector flat on its back, it can take not just five years, 10, 15 years before you get the private sector to, uh, get, to, get, to get back on its feet. Um, Richard Koo, a great economist at uh, Nomura Research International, argues that, yeah, you, know, you could be a, a fiscal conservative and keep things tight in the long 30-year upturn um, uh, which capitalist economies have. When they go into their long 20 or 30-year downturn after an event like the credit crunch we've been through, the state is the spender and borrower of last resort. It's only fair that it discharges that obligation. Uh, because there will be other cycles we know in the, in the future. And I will say to people, and I've said it in this lecture room before, and I want to repeat it tonight, some of you will not have heard it. Um, between 93 and 2000, we, we, we turned things around by 10% um, of GDP. We didn't, it wasn't the roof didn't fall in on our heads. We raised taxation. Um, we constrained the growth of public expenditure, and we got to the other side of a big crisis. We just could do the same again, not do it in seven years, in my view. Let's take eight or nine. Let's not do it in three or four years. And by the way, when we get to the end of it, where will the national debt be? It'll be where it's been for lower than it was between 1750 and, uh, and, 19, and 1870. Um, it, was, it was Macaulay who actually said that every decade from 1750 to 1870, Tories said, let's get the debt down. And actually, some people in the audience will not, of course, be so keen on English expansion as uh, some of us. Uh, let's be neutral about British expansion. But his point was that actually the British couldn't have kept a fleet on five oceans, couldn't have won the Napoleonic Wars, financed the Industrial Revolution without actually allowing the debt-to-GDP ratio to go to 300%. And I can tell you, speaking personally, I have no sense that my forebearers did me a bad deal. Um, and then the national debt went down, and it went back up again to above 85% of GDP from 1914 to 1980, and now it's low And it's going it's to go back up to, the, to, the, to those levels. You look at the last 260 years, all but 60 of them, and between 1750 and 2010, the national debt was higher than it will be in 2015. So I think that we have to uh, think quite carefully about this. We also have to think about what's fair from the government's point of view. What's, view, what's fair from the, co the, the collectivity of British citizens? 
You pay tax. You, 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 you spend on things like infrastructure. You spend on things like universities. Um, I would argue that it's um, your due dessert that you get tax yield for the discretionary effort you've made in giving taxes to the authorities. It's only fair to pay tax. Because if you want the things that come off tax, you've got to pay in to get it back. That's Lionel Hobhouse, 1911. And I like, I like Hobhouse's views. I think that his, his, his big point about um, the march of science and technology, when he says, of, you know, citing uh, Isaac Newton, if I can see further than other men, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Actually, all scientific advance is kind of incremental, depending on what others have done. We move, you know, science moves through the collective investment, uh, and scientific knowledge becomes something that is, you know, owned by the, owned by all of us actually. And then the next generation of scientists and technologists play with that cumulative knowledge to add more to the stock. And Hobhouse said that there's not a scientist alive who doesn't owe his or her kind of um, light bulb moment to the efforts of others. And actually, 95% um, of the return should thus go to the state in the form of taxation. Not a thing that you hear much uh, in um, 2009. Um, but actually, um, if, you, if you look at, um, I always like to hear, you know, Alicia Bell painted the telephone three hours before, um, Alicia Gray painted the telephone three hours before um, Alexander Bell in the 1870s. They both had the same stock of technology. You know, you could build a telephone because the, the kit lay all around you. And one man got there a few hours before the other and his, his lawyer said, don't worry about the paint, the telephone's not going to fly. But my point is, is that, uh, is that um, rather than think of um, entrepreneurs and scientists having light bulb moments that are independent of actually what has been collectively generated, um, we should think, uh, in, I think, in different categories. And I think you start to, that, that reframes completely the way we think about public finances in my view. Third challenge, fourth challenge, fifth challenge, it's 25 past seven, I'm not going to um, devote much more time to it. I want to take your questions and I want you to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, uh, there's a whole story about how we rebalance our society. And again, I, don't th I, I just don't think it's fair. I don't think it's any kid's due dessert that actually if they're born in some ward in Bognor or some ward in Sheffield, uh, that, is, that has got kind of unique concentrations of social deprivation, um, that, they should have, that that should be a, kind of a, a lifelong sentence. I think in exactly the same way that you put your uh, hands in your pocket for the handful of people in this room who have pancreatic cancer, so you've got to put your hands in your pocket to alleviate the condition of people who draw the bad luck lottery of being born in a place like that. The kids don't deserve it. And so we, I think there has to be a mobilization not actually the, uh, I think New Labour's done a, a bit, but there's been no sense of mobilization uh, um, to actually um, re 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 redress this um, disadvantage, nor actually to attack the way the professional middle classes can passport their way um, to actually privileged positions in our um, society. But, and here's a but, we wouldn't pull this off if you relieve people who are in these um, circumstances of any responsibility um, for, um, uh, for um, why they're there. 
they, it's actually often they who actually are, are the fastest to blow the whistle on you know, um, the new arrival who hasn't earned um, um, their free prescription or hasn't earned, um, in their view, the flatter house in which they're living through uh, behaving properly and well. And by the way, you know, they're right. And so if you, if you do this mobilization without inbuilt rules that respect those fundamental human predispositions, you get into trouble. You can't just do it as a simple collectivist egalitarian act. You've got to respect, if you like, um, the marks of the um, early Gotha program. Rebalancing our politics. I've, I've said what I have want to say there. I mean, all I, what I, what I do uh, beware um, the, an incoming conservative government dropping, in effect, a British version of the fairness doctrine for broadcasting. If we have a situation in which um, um, Sky News can behave like um, uh, Fox News without any obligations for impartiality or balance, uh, because allegedly um, the whole system provides that, um, we will invent for ourselves uh, a public conversation very like that in the States. Um, uh, rebalancing politics is not just a story of what we do about MPs' expenses and the balance between uh, the center and the, and the locality. It's also a story about what we do, about the way we conduct public conversation. And lastly, um, we've got to do something about the international. Uh, I, David runs, um, David's work here is, uh, you know, he is the, um, yeah, he is um, the leader in um, the UK, I think. Uh, his books on this are uh, arguing for an intelligent, kind of cosmopolitan, kind of liberal international democracy, and uh, are, I think, you know, where I'm at too. And I guess what I, my, my, my point is, and there's only a few words left for me because I must stop talking, um, is that uh, an, an, unless we can um, tr try to really refine these notions on um, fairness, I don't think we're going to get a climate deal. I don't think we're going to get um, a reshaped IMF and, and UN. And I think that you know, we, we need to have a... a when, the, when the less developed world says the developed world, well, actually, it's your due dessert that actually you pay a lot more than us for putting the climate right because actually almost all the carbon in the atmosphere is what you did. Actually, they're A, they're human to say it, and B, they're right. And we have to recognize that and have a discourse which recognizes it. But simultaneously, we can, we can, make we can, we can say that a deal you know, um, does require kind of uh, obligations on them too going as we, as we progress. And around that kind of framework, I think you could get um, some progress in order Copenhagen afterwards. So here we are, a, a kind of a monumental moment really in all our lives. Um, unemployment for 19 to 18 to 24 year olds, 950,000, the highest in Europe. Cameron's figures were right on that. Um, uh, a long, slow um, recovery, um, an economy which is you know, out of balance. And we cannot go uh, back to business as usual. Um, we, 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 um, and I, I think that uh, for, for, for me, um, it's, um, uh, as I've been reiterating throughout, like a, I hope like a golden thread, this kind of, I think one can kind of build a consensus of the majority um, around a shared conception of fairness. We need a left, and a way, I think, that um, 
Um, when, when left-of-center uh, politicians talk about their commitment to equality, um, um, they don't do it with they don't do it very much. And when they do do it, um, um, and they try to do it with passion, um, that audiences really don't hear them. And I think that the um, what we want from left-of-center politicians um, is a passion um, about enlightenment values, and at the core of the enlightenment. And the sense that you challenge incumbent power, you dare um, to know, and you look for fair process and fair outcomes. Um, and in a way, the letter centre, I think, kind of is the trustee um, of, the, of that tradition. And it's abrogated its responsibility um, for too long. And as we're likely to elect a Conservative government in 2010, um, we need it uh, very, very badly um, to recognize that the, that old discourse of you know, smashing the state, liberating the market, and doing it all through charity is really only part of the story. Um, there's a challenge, I think, to both um, left and right in these ideas, and there's not much time to get it right. Thank you very much. Plenty of time, well, some time for questions. Um, thank you, Will, for your very wide-ranging talk, starting with philosophical reflections on fairness and ending with a program for contemporary British politics. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that questions could be put to each element of this uh, program. I'm going to take questions in clusters of five to get them on the ground, and if we, if we could get you, Will, fairly, not to be too long in your response to each and every one of these questions, then we can get a second and third round as well. So we've got roaming mics. Let me, please, can your questions be short and tight so there's plenty of time for a gentleman at the back on coming up, just a second. Thank you very much. Um, rebalancing, I think, is the crucial word. Two brief points. Um, I was surprised that you said the private sector recover in five to ten years. Isn't the fact that we saw our manufacturing industry absolutely decimated in the 80s by Thatcherite economic policies? And I say that as a former One Nation Tory MP, where unemployment in two of my towns went up, I say possessively, but I was trying to help them, two of my towns went up to over 30% within three years, and it's never recovered. Uh, because we've never, we, our economy's been totally out of balance probably long before then, but it became markedly so then. And second, very brief point, what are you going to do? How can we tackle the grotesque distortion in pay in this country? And it really is grotesque. It's not just the bankers. It's footballers versus nurses. It's local council chief executives earning three times as much as the prime minister. When are we going to get the values of this country right? We've got to get it right, and it's time that, you know, we, we, how are we going to do it? Lady at the top. Yes. Um, how do you define contribution? How do you define contribution? Good question. Yes, the guy at the back with his arm up. Um, so I have two questions. The first one is, I don't know if you've read it, but John Romer's 1998 book, Equality of Opportunity, I'm not sure how your proposal about fairness di differs from his, and if you have read it, how would you say it has, or does, sorry. And the second one is, um, if we know that markets um, are problematic, um, how do we determine value? 
Um, so we know they're corrupt, we know that they're undergird by something going wrong. How do we determine value and how do we de decide how we reward CEOs? Related to the first question, I suppose. Yeah. Pretty tough. Uh, you know, Keep quiet. Gonna go lie down, actually. <laughs> um, so, sorry. Um, what's the best way of eliminating rent seeking from finance? Okay. And one more down here. Anybody down here? Yes. Guy up front. Sorry. Come back to you. When you look at existing institutions, um, national and international. How far do you see them as being fit for purpose in supporting fairness? That's five, isn't it, Will? We're that is five we're, we're, really we're, big we're, questions. Yes, we're going to come back to the audience, and you can start yeah, uh, next time. Um, uh, let me just throw in one other thought <laughs> whilst you're there, uh, because you know, I'll keep it very brief. I mean, I, I, I found it may be because you didn't spend enough time on, on fairness. I have to say I found your explication of this, or at least the grounds for your explication of choosing fairness as the leading normative principle, as it were, very hard to, to follow. I mean, you say that we are all born with an intuitive ability to hold people account for their intentions, but we are born with an ability for all sorts of things, egotism, selfishness, so on. You just have to spend time with children or watch your playground to see the multiplicity of intuitive talents children have. So you could make an argument from any one of these intuitive capacities to a variety of sorts of principle. So saying that we are born with some intuitive ability doesn't really swing the argument, it seems to me, necessarily in your direction. I often think, you know, Lord of the Flies is an underestimation of the problem of raising children, even though I'm a social democrat. I mean, the amount of times you spend having to say no, constrain, this, rule, that shows, in some senses, the mighty complexity of human impulses and so on. And since you just pick this out as the core of your argument, I would, you know, one needs to know the grounds. And that brings us to the key principle of fairness itself. At every point, of course, the problem is, do you desert for discretionary evidence? What is a contribution? How do you assess it? What is desert? And how do you measure it? What is discretionary? And that is where the political argument is. Because there is not from first principles, a common agreement about these things. And that is why you need perhaps less argue from core grounds of principles of justice or fairness, and maybe you have to argue from principles of democracy, deliberation, and accountability, a different way of getting at similar conclusions. Stop. Sorry, I didn't adhere to my own rules of being very brief. Well, the start, at the top. start at the top. And be yeah, brief. And be brief. Um, well, there's, uh, um, I've, been, I've been wrestling with um, uh, this for um, six, seven, eight months, and, uh, and actually arguably longer, because I began reading for this um, long before that. So, um, and I fully acknowledge that um, it's work in progress to a degree, but um, let me go one by one. Um, I mean, your passionate thing about, about um, pay. Um, I think that um, um, what took place um, in the last 30 years is this uh, amazing shadow banking system, um, the amazing returns that were made in it. Um, uh, there's a whole story about why it was that actually the people in it were allowed to make the money that they made, and I mean, dynastic fortunes were made. And that had a ratchet effect. First of all, on the um, uh, uh, 
the CEOs in America and then in Britain. So that CEO pay went up from kind of 30 to 1 um, to over 100 to 1 in Britain. And you know, it's more that it's close to 500 to 1 in the States. And then that had a ratchet effect, I think, on public service, actually. So, you know, you see Mark Thompson, the BBC, getting big money, um, following in the train of all of this. And, and finally, you know, the people who run local authorities. Um, and, uh, you know, were, uh, are, and the people who run our great companies, three times as effective as they were um, 30 years ago? Um, is there, I mean, have their, is their discretionary effort so much more valuable that they're worth all the extra dessert? Plainly not. Uh, and the uh, and the way you get at this, it seems to me, is the um, is that I think we we uh, have to. I mean, I, I think there's, it's now kind of a deep cultural thing. I mean, when you uh, you know you try to take the money off these people, um, Warren Buffett tried to take money off people in Solomon's in the 1990s. He said the whole reward system is crazy, and they and half the Solomon's walked, and you know he had to Solomon he had to disinvest from the investment bank and and uh, and retire her. He couldn't he couldn't come up with a way of remunerating people um, in a way that they would stay in the investment bank. We have to reduce, we have to scale the size back of this sector. Um, that's the necessary, that's the insufficient condition for doing something. We have to scale it back and we have to make it as profitable. Um, you, we have, it has to have um, much more capital at its, at its core. We have to um, break up the scale of it so that the individual actors in it are much smaller. Um, we have to have much less leverage in it. We have to remove the implicit taxpayer guarantee. Um, and I think we have to set, we, 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 we have to say, we have to set upper limits to what, to what bonuses are. So, you know, and then, and, and I, and, and I, the word is that Harriet Harman is considering having a, uh, beginning a high pay commission. And I, I think that is an extremely good idea um, in this sense. And I think that, it, that what the, the question the high pay commission should be asking is and it, and it comes to your 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 point actually, David, um, is not you know we're going to we're, we're going to ban you um, from say having um, you know pay of X, um, but what we are going to ask is actually what are the circumstances? How have you rigged the market to be able to afford to pay yourself that much when it's out of line with everyone else? And then there should be automatic referrals by the High Pay Commission to the Competition Commission, who should do, as of right, uh, or mandated to do, a really tough competition inquiry. Now, they, I mean, the next thing is, is that, I mean, uh, what, do you, what do you do about um, manufacturing? I mean, I, 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 you know, my, you know my, my point about the 50 Rolls-Royces, I mean, I... You know, look at Derby, which has got Bombardier, Toyota, and, and Rolls-Royce. It's a, it's, a, it's a city which has you know, actually got relatively good um, you know, um, you know, social behaviors. You, know, you don't get that much um, kind of um, um, violence, street crime, all the rest of it in Derby. You do in Stoke, which doesn't have any of those. So how do you bring you know, those big companies to... Um, to, to Stoke. Well the, well, the first thing you have to do is to stop them from um, collapsing in places like Derby, where they are. And, you know, I mean, I tried to say what I thought about our institutional architecture, which, you know, doesn't support um, that. Look, the trouble is, is that to do this quickly, I'm not going to do it justice. But suffice to say, I have a suite of things to do. Come and see me afterwards or buy the book, and uh, it'll be fine. Um, 
Um, so, so I can, uh, contribute. How, does, how do I how do I assess contribution? Um, and that was um, both from um, David and 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 a, and a, and, a, and a questioner. Well, I I think that, um, uh, and you're right to say, David, that it is a you know that there's that there's no agreement on it. But I, I one of my criticisms about Michael Sandel, and actually by inference you, is to imagine that just by having effective deliberation, that that will come to an answer. It seems to me that if you deliberate without at least some kind of anchor values, you know, you, your chance of coming to an answer which has legitimacy is going to be quite small. And that's why I, I've been uh, so keen, actually, to, to you know, home in on fairness and the cluster of values um, around it, because I think that there are some anchor values around which one could get some, you know, adherence. I think that um, the... the um, uh, I think the answer, actually, to uh, how you um, get, and people aren't going to like this very much, but I think it is the only answer one can come up with in a capitalist society. It is a, a genuinely um, highly competitive market which actually allows um, a, a firm or an individual to assess whether their, um, their, whether their discretionary effort, uh, how it's rewarded. And when you see excessive reward, you always see bent markets. You see bent markets in the premiership. You see bent markets in banking. You see bent markets in the way remuneration committees fix CEO salaries. And what you have to do is you have to you know, open it completely up. And that, for me, is a kind of a democratic story. Um, <coughs> there's no other way to do it, I think. On this um, Roma question, yes, there are um, strong... Um, uh, Echoes of um, that thinking um, with mine, um, uh, and you know that. All I would say is that um, uh, that was written um, before the financial crisis and before um, you know we've gone through what we've gone through. And I think the the, the urgency of the questions that were posed there um, is now is now more, and there's more people prepared to kind of buy. The propositions, and it's worthwhile rolling that again, in my view. Um, uh, <clears throat> what to do about rent-seeking um, finance? Um, I think that we must. Um, uh, uh, I'm one way or another. Um, we have got to break banks up. We've got to have a. You know, the Americans bust Standard Oil in 1911. You know, there has to be a trust-busting moment across the European Union and the United States. Uh, of these enormous banks, um, and you can, we can allow them to be universal banks, but smaller, or we can break them up um, in this Glass-Steagall. You know, the, the commercial banking and the kind of casino banking is separated. There's a variety of ways that you can do it, but it must be done. Um, I think that there's, um, uh, and then I think that you know we have to um, the idea. And I do find it. I mean, I do find the idea that the banking sector got to five times GDP um, in 2007, with only with deposit insurance at the time was just two thousand pounds. You know, and the banks were resisting that there should be more deposit insurance. I mean, just so you have a benchmark in your mind, you know, banking as a share of GDP was 50 percent in the 19th century, right up until 1950. That was where it was. You know, it was it was so. Um, uh, um, it's, it, was, it was it was one of the most amazing phenomena that we've ever witnessed. I think. I mean, it, it's 
right up there. There's a whole agenda for how you do it. I've just I've, uh, are institutions fit for are international institutions fit for purpose in terms of fairness? <coughs> no, and move on. No, and move on. Uh, although there is usually there's something in the constitution which you can you can latch onto, but the answer is no. Um, and I think I tried to answer your question as best I could. Listen, there's, there's, we've got a little bit more time. Um, where's the roaming mic at the top? Yeah, give it to the guy at the front. We'll try and take a few more questions as quickly as we can. I think you partly answered this question, but is one of the reasons that we don't have more Rolls Royces or Bombardiers or why SMEs fail, part of the reason behind that is that Tesco and Starbucks, they hold so high barriers to market entry. Time was, if you wanted to serve coffee or sell groceries, you would get a loan from credit union, have your own business, get just dessert for your discretionary effort. And the only game in town is Tesco now. If we lower bar barriers to market entry, is that fairer? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, mine's probably a slightly different take on that question, but it's actually more of a comment where I disagree with your views. Um, you refer to scientific and manufacturing as the solution forward, and that's the things that you place value, they're those types of innovations. However, you seem not to value financial innovation, and in fact, I believe your comments were that some of those products were so sophisticated and so complex. However, yet that is also a form of innovation and given competitive advantage of resources moving away. I'd sort of like to understand why your views are placed in that direction. I'd like to go back on this due dessert business. The banks are far above the mind-blowing efforts of certainly people like me, but I'd like to go down to the more ordinary people. I want to know how we can get more logic and more fairness in the pay uh, and salaries of people further down. Why is the uh, bus driver, thank God we've got bus drivers, paid more than graduate teachers and why are nurses paid so little? There's a whole lot of imbalance and just to add to uh, due dessert, why are women paid so much less than men in the city? Thank, thank you very much. In the city, they are paid 50% of the males doing exactly the same job. Uh, I'm old enough to actually have raised money from uh, the old 3i group. Uh, and one of the things which it seems to me is that that type of financing for manufacturing industry and things like that just doesn't really exist anymore. So shouldn't there be a requirement when everything is being sorted out that actually the banks are made to recapitalize 3i in, in the way that it was established in the 40s? by you know, making them put in £500 million each or whatever and then giving that organisation that very specific requirement to drive industrial development and all the smaller companies that 3i was actually uh, sorted out to help support. Yeah. Yeah. Guy at the end. Yeah. Um, earlier on in your talk you mentioned about our... Um, you know, our system, the basic parliamentary system we've got, and the fact that it's got quite a few, uh, I don't think you use the word feudal, but it's got some, still got some sort of feudal hangovers in the House of Lords and all the rest of it. Um, 
When the scandal of the MPs' expenses first broke, in that furore and the anger that immediately followed that, there was a lot in the media about, oh, we're going to, you know, come the next election or before the next election, we're going to reform the system, we'll have proportional representation, we'll have the recall of MPs, we'll have a democratically elected House of Lords, we'll do this, that and the other. And that, that chat went on for about a fortnight. And now the dust has settled, it's all completely vanished. It's as if it's, you know, back to uh, situation normal and uh, the, the, the chance of any real political reform seems to have vanished. Got anything to say about that? Okay, Will, just to come back to my question for a second. You, 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 <laughs> which, is an, which is an important question. You, no, it's, a sort of, it's about the standing of the argument. It's not about so much your conclusions, yeah, yeah. but it's about the standing of the argument as a philosophical argument. You, and you say effective deliberation. You want, to anchor effective, you want to anchor the argument in some durable values, some sustainable values which shape and constrain politics. Now, then the question is to you, where do you get these values from? Because all parts of the political spectrum want to anchor politics in certain kinds of values. What will trump your conception of fairness or the principle of fairness in relation to contending principles and contending values is how you provide a rationale and a foundation for those arguments that you know, anchor them in something that is very firm. And that's when I thought your opening point on this intuitive ability and so on is actually not a very strong argument. So I would really love you in your concluding remarks to come back to help persuade us as to why it is a strong argument and why you think it trumps other intuitive capabilities, let's say, to be egotistical, selfish, nasty, horrible, which we all have, unfortunately, in quite considerable abundance. Now, um, you've got five minutes to wrap up, so maybe you could come to that <laughs> at the end. Um, well, there's a point made about um, um, Tesco and, and, you know, this is a, uh, it should be clear by now that uh, this is a, this is a, this is a, um, you know, my agenda is a, is a, a charter against economic rent and against monopoly and, you know, really understanding, you know, how dynamically bad it is. You know, it's, it's, it's not just bad because it entrenches power and wealth at a moment in time, it actually freezes, um, um, the whole dynamic process. So I, you know, you, you answered your question and I agree with you. Um, then there was a point about three eyes, I think. Um, and I, you know, just to say this, uh, you, you, these figures I think are astonishing. Um, uh, British banks have lent 1.8 billion pounds, 1.8 trillion pounds. They spent trillions of other dollars and euros to other people, but they spent, they've lent 1.8 trillion pounds to British. You know, 1.2 trillion is um, lent to your mortgage. Uh, 350 billion is lent on commercial property. There's about 200 billion on um, uh, consumer credit. There's another kind of 100 billion uh, on working capital. And there's virtually nothing to support investment innovation. I mean, that is the numbers. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and we, we um, unless you, and, and I, we, we, there is no way um, that you can put that right without constructing, without, I, I don't think, A, breaking up the banks, B, we, want, we need them to have different business models, and C, we need to build some public uh, private banks and some public banks and some initiatives like what the old three eyes used to do that actually, you know, d fills the gap. Otherwise, we're never going to have 50 Rolls Royces. I mean, I'm, that's just a, uh, I've, I've, I've thought that. Um, for 40 years, and I think it even more strongly now. 
Um, and one of the things that I really I find so kind uh, upsets me actually, I get physically sick about it, is that this opportunity presented itself over the last 18 months to do something and it wasn't taken. Uh, and it, it's one of the great missed moments. I mean, there was one great missed moment in the 1945-51 government when we didn't abolish private schools. And people like me will be sitting in this lecture hall in the, in the next 30, 40, 50 years saying there was one missed moment uh, when Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown did not reform the banking system in 2007-2010. They had, they had was a moment and didn't do it. In fact, the most amazing thing of all is, is that um, in, I mean, I think it's the most amazing thing of all, I mean, uh, uh, was that actually um, in the, um, in, in the, uh, in the sp in the spring summer of 2008, uh, Alistair sat down with a chap called Vin Bischoff, who has become the chair of Lloyd's, and started an inquiry into how you promote the city's international competitiveness. It then had the bailout of the banks. It reported in May of this year the, the Bischoff report, and it said essentially that whatever the response the government made to the crisis, it should actually be you know, to promote the city's international competitiveness, which is overriding importance to the country. That um, any increase in regulation we kept to a minimum. And there should be um, no increase in taxation, otherwise it will all go elsewhere. And that was co-chaired by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And on that, on that, and sitting on that um, committee were almost solidly um, bankers with the banking and financial background. I mean, in the Macmillan report in the in the in the 19, early 1930s, and the Wilson investigation, which weren't particularly um, uh, successful in bringing about change, at least there was a cross-section of. Um, the business community, the academic community, uh, and even trade unions represented, not on the Bishop report. So I feel very, very strongly about that. Um, am I against, am I, what do I think about financial innovation? I am, I do think that um, some of the financial, I mean, I mean, there's not time, but I do think um, conceptions like value at risk, um, the collateralized debt obligation, the collateralized debt obligation that housed other collateralized debt obligations, a CDO squared, and, uh, and then a treble CDO, you know, when, these are innovations where the, the kind of just the, the there's 1.6 billion pages of documentation over around for some of these structured investment vehicles, kind of unreadable by anyone. Um, and I, I, I think that the there was a there was a fiction that actually one could you know manage risk because black swan events, the a Gaussian distribution, bell curve distributions you know, inside a long tail, and I, you know actually that was never the way that actually. Um, uh, that was never the way that actually bad events or, or, or um, what we know are likely events but you can't predict when they're going to happen but you know they're going to happen um, the mathematics that was associated with it I think was profoundly faulty and, it, and, and no story of what happened in the last 15 years is possible without actually you know, getting into the, the false mathematics that sat behind the innovation and the innovation was driven by a desire to grow balance sheets very very fast because it would endow people with you know very very big remuneration and I, and I and you know laws were bent. I mean I, I the way that you know Hank Paulson campaigned to get or not so much Hank Paulson but Sally Wilde campaigned to get rid of um, you know Glass Steagall so travellers could be reversed into Citigroup. I mean I find the whole thing an amazing amazing story. I mean it makes you know I Claudius or you know um, um, so I could rank things that have happened in our you know in, in, in history you know seem tame really. Um, does, that, does that mean that every financial innovation is a bad thing? No. Um, do I think that wealth generation is only about um, technologies and science? Um, I do, actually. 
um, but that's not to say that I think that innovation is that, uh, that, the, that the humanities, the social sciences, you know, that you know, the, the acts of creativity in the culture and creative industries are not, you know, essential kind of um, components of the process. Because if you don't have culture demand, you don't have any supply. There's an interaction between these things, uh, and, and any monocausal explanation of anything um, get, goes wrong. Um, on the um, on political reform has gone quiet. You're right, political reform has gone quiet. Um, by the way, MPs themselves feel it very acutely. And I was in the, you know, uh, uh, they think that a third, maybe more, of the current House of Commons won't, won't be back, actually, um, in 2010. You know, and MPs themselves, I mean, their morale is rock bottom. And they feel themselves to be um, despised. And they think that as, you know, Democratic representatives that you know better is owed to them, but recognise that this particular House of Commons can never earn it, and the sooner that the curtain goes down on it, the better. Um, but you're right; the, the, the you know a, a good story on political reform has not been made. I mean, again, you know there was talk about I mean whether it's proportional representation, whether it's you know. Uh, more power to cities and city regions. I mean, whatever you want, wherever you want to talk, you know, the process is not good, and we need, you know, more bottom-up pressure. I think more bottom-up pressure, um, because you know, for my money, um, the kind of, you know, what I've called an open access society is is in part about using political institutions and democracy to kind of open up kind of entrenched economic power um, and the economic rent that goes with it. You don't have that, if that process is imperfect or screwed up, you know, you're not at first base. And we've, it's never been very good in Britain. And lastly, D David's challenge. I mean, I, um, I, uh, um, I, there's contestation over what fair means. I mean, I, I ran across off the record, uh, unattributably, and there was uh, Channel House rules and, um, uh, Michael Howard once told me that um, he wished he'd fought the 2005 election uh, on a fairness ticket. He thinks the Tories should have made fairness um, their ticket and that ideas like earned citizenship um, uh, and uh, you know, tough love um, were only fair. And Hollow as well, that's what he said. Uh, but he's... Um, <laughs> Wait, wait, hey, 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 uh, well, I don't, but I mean, let me just—I mean, we—if you're on the—if you're on the liberal left, and I plainly, and I am, you know, I can't uh, in, in the same way that um, you know you can't say that uh, you, you you can't say that you have that only my tradition has monopoly of this value. You can't say that, I don't think. But you can any more than you can say, you know, I don't think. Otherwise, you get yourself in a terrible, terrible place. But what you can say, it seems to me, and this is why I've kind of broken my head in trying to come up with the best I can do, and it may not be good enough, in actually trying to adumbrate what the principles are of fairness. So that, you know, the traditions can, they'll fight over it, and they'll, they'll lay claim to it. Uh, but, you know, the, in the act, of, the act of arguing about it, if there's some shared idea of what the bloody thing means, you, you, you have the likelihood that, that the electorate at large can vote one way or the other. If you don't make the, the attempt, and maybe my attempt you know, has not convinced you, David, but you know, there's enough kind of stuff coming up from the audience which suggests that the lady who suggests why bus drivers paid, less than, paid more than you know, graduate teachers and your point about the way women are paid, I mean, that's a fairness question. 
And let's. And I think if you. Of if course, you, it's a fairness question. Uh, but if you say. He can't do that because fairness requires that staff at the LSC go home. Uh, they go home. <laughs> they go home at eight o'clock. We respect their rules, and uh, so it remains for me, on that note, to say that. Well, um, uh, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, obviously, discussion could go on. Thank you. <laughs>